Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, is it possible the Ontario budget will be balanced in just two years? More school boards are trying to defy the province's end of the mask mandate. More info has surfaced about the medical officer of health's one-month absence. And in light of the hit-and-run killing of one of Canada's most beloved maestros, a conversation about the need for all of us to share the road. It's Tuesday, April 19th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, you and I both remember how big the deficit and the debt numbers for the province of Ontario have been over the past few years as COVID-19 has required really unprecedented amounts of public spending. I well remember in the early 1980s, the deficit hit $3 billion and we thought the world was coming to an end. (laughs) Now, last year, Ontario presented a budget with a deficit north of $38 billion, and yet somehow the same apocalyptic pronouncements were not made, and maybe now we know why. The Financial Accountability Office has been crunching the numbers. What have they discovered? Uh, Well, in short, uh, the uh, provincial economy has come roaring back. Uh, That has lifted uh, provincial tax revenues. And so the deficit for the uh, fiscal year ending March 31st, 2022 was $8.7 billion. Uh, But more importantly, uh, the FAO projects that, you know, if the uh, current government policies uh, play out as expected, and if it, you know, (laughs) maybe if it gets a bit lucky, uh, the province will be able to balance its uh, fiscal uh, ledger uh, by 2023-24 and run a surplus of $7.1 billion by 2027. Uh, the net debt-to-GDP ratio would drop to 33.9%. Uh, it has been uh, near 50% at some points because of the pandemic and the, the substantial expansion of spending that required, as well as a, a drop in uh, revenues. Obvious follow-up question. Is this baked in? In other words, can we take this to the bank, so to speak? (laughs) Well, they are, of course, projections. And, you know, these days, as the FAO has been the first to admit, it's hard to project two years out because you just do not know what will happen. I mean, (laughs) every chart of economic indicators uh, that goes back more than 10 years now is going to have to have an asterisk because all of the numbers go really, really screwy back in 2020, right? Um, But if things do continue as they have been within you know, non-pandemic error bars, uh, growth should continue at rates that, uh, you know, a full percentage point faster than the growth recorded over the previous seven-year period. Uh, Now, obviously, uh, the FAO cannot predict anything, everything uh, any more than you or I can. So overseas wars, uh, a a new, more resurgent wave in the pandemic, other unforeseen events can always knock these projections around. But this is what the FAO is saying about where we are and where we are looking forward from today. How much of this rosier scenario is is thanks to the billions of dollars that the federal government is giving to Ontario, uh, for example, for the child care agreement? 
uh, it's not just the child care agreement by uh, by any stretch, but it's lots and lots of this is, uh, you know, the result of federal spending, basically. Uh, the FAO's updated revenue outlook is a $17.2 billion higher compared to the projections released a year ago. Uh, there are two channels that the, really that the province benefits from uh, federal spending. Uh, they get direct transfers from Ottawa, uh, health care transfers, social service transfers, and now child care transfers. Uh, but they also benefit from the rapid economic recovery that has occurred, uh, and that is due in no small part to federal aid to uh, households and businesses. Well, if the books are in better shape than we've been led to believe, the government will have some very, very tough calls to make in the coming months, such as you know, more money in the cupboard, so to speak, is always going to lead to uh, more demands on the public purse uh, from any number of advocacy groups. Uh, you know, it could lead to uh, demands for more tax breaks or uh, debt repayment. Uh, in fact, the FAO has actually uh, already projected that this government will make further tax cuts uh, later in this decade. Um, basically, they're, they're looking at some of the, the future revenues that the government is already reporting. Um, but these are calls that, you know, every government either has the difficult job or privilege to make, depending on your perspective. It's, you know, it's a job that every party in the legislature wants, right? Um, inevitably, some people will be happy and others disappointed. Uh, this news may help explain why the government has been handing out money uh, hand over fist for the past couple of months, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars for the auto sector uh, in subsidies, tax cuts for uh, citizens and households. You know, one last word on this, uh, which despite the buoyant news for the uh, province's uh, fiscal situation is kind of interesting. The growth in program spending is not expected to keep pace with either population growth uh, or the elevated rate of inflation uh, over the, the, the timeline of the projection. So in effect, uh, despite the big numbers, there will actually be a decline in uh, real spending per capita uh, over the, 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 the horizon of this, this outlook. Uh, that's going to, uh, of course, open the door to the opposition parties saying that the government isn't spending enough, even though uh, the budget will clock in at nearly $200 billion in spending annually. You know, remember, we were just talking about this last week. Uh, the same financial accountability officer reported that Ontario is dead last in Canada for provincial program spending per capita. So if uh, these forecasts are right, that is not going to change. Again, I have to play my old fogey role here. And you just said we're going to spend $200 billion annually. 200 billion. I mean, I remember Bill Davis's last budget was 25 billion dollars. And that covered <laughs> that that was meant to cover everything that's being covered today. Uh holy smokes. No, anyway. it's it's a, a fascinating uh it's a fascinating story about how the the public spending in the province has changed because, you know, it's really the result of um basically you know, a handful of crises are really responsible for the vast majority of all of the provincial debt, for example. Uh, the the recession in 1990, uh, the great financial crisis in 2008, and now, of course, COVID. Those three events have driven this enormous inflation of uh, the, the province's debt. The, the Inflation is a confusing term for me to use in this context. <laughs> Understand what you mean. Well, let's return to a topic we discussed last week, and that is why Ontario's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Karen Moore, was out of the public eye for a month. We now have part of the explanation which surfaced last week, don't we? 
<laughs> yes, we do. Uh, apparently, for uh, some of that month, he was on vacation in the Dominican Republic. Uh, now, I- I'm just going to say, look, the chief medical officer of health gig is, I think, the toughest one in the province right now, considering he's been working crazy hours uh, since uh, the pandemic hit. He was a a local medical officer of health before he took the provincial job. Uh, I don't begrudge the man some time off, honestly, and and I don't think that many people do. Uh, I'm sure he was in touch with his office. You know, it's not that hard to stay in touch with people uh, these days. Uh, But of course, there are questions. Uh, The opposition are wondering why the government didn't just say in the first place, rather than fudging about where he was and, and you know, why he wasn't giving public briefings. You know, uh, the government could have said that. Uh, Dr. Moore himself could have said that. Uh, it is just another example, uh, frankly, you know, inexplicably to me, uh, why people in public life just don't come out and be open and transparent about these things, right? The, the information almost always comes out, and it comes out at a timing that you don't get to choose. So why not get ahead of it, right? Uh, and it's not like we don't have recent examples of this, of public <laughs> figures getting pilloried for being out of country, you know, uh, without being straight about it. I, I just have to obviously name, you know, former MPP Rod Phillips, right? I, I don't get this behavior and I don't think I ever will. There was a guy named um, Paul Rhodes who used to be an advisor to Mike Harris when he was Premier of Ontario. And his advice to his premier always was, figure out where this story is going and go there right away. Don't do the, you know, drip, drip, drip of of bad story after bad story day after day, which finally three weeks from now you're going to have to apologize or or reveal or do the right thing anyway. Just if you know where the story's going, just go there. Get it over with. And I think you're right. I don't think anybody begrudges this guy a vacation. He's worked his ass off. Oh, can I say, am I allowed to say that? I just did. <laughs> we'll, we'll beep it out, I'm sure. But I mean, look, just as the, the classic example, or not even classic, the ongoing example right now of the, the, the drip, drip, drip killing a government, look at Boris Johnson in the UK, right? Every new revelation about parties being held uh, while the rest of the, the country was under lockdown and, you know, every denial having to get, oh, so actually it turns out we were partying. You know, it just, it's just, murder and I don't understand, you know, well, I mean, I guess I kind of understand why it happens, but everybody knows it's going to fail. (laughs) All right, let's turn our telescope to the opposition side of the House. The Liberals made a pretty big announcement the other day related to who's standing for office in the next election for them. What's that about? When Stephen Del Duca ran for the leadership of the Liberal Party, he pledged that 50% of the candidates for the 2022 election would be women. And the Liberal leader has confirmed last week that they have met that target. It is the first time ever that the party has had 50% female candidates. So, you know, they're, they're pretty chuffed about that. And kudos to the Liberals on that. Promise made, promise kept, as the government of the day would say. But... Um... Okay, I don't want to be churlish here, but I do recall Mr. Del Duca also promised to have 30 of his candidates be under the age of 30 as a way of drawing more young people to the Liberal Party and his leadership campaign two years ago. And incidentally, um, well, I don't think they've fared all that well on that score. Uh, no, I think that's fair to say. Uh, they, they have snagged some prominent young people uh, in their roster of candidates, but uh Based on what I've seen, I, I, I would say it's far from clear that they're on track to meet the, the specific target that Del Duca himself uh, set during his bid for the leadership. Let's check out on the NDP now. They are road testing some new lines in anticipation of the election. And the latest one is, in 2018, the NDP came first or second in 100 ridings. 
100 out of 124. That's a lot. So they consider themselves to be the best alternative to the Ford Tories. And while, of course, they're hoping for a majority government, their leader, Andrea Horvath, is saying she's 10 seats short of being able to form a government. What does that mean? There's another part of her argument that is intriguing, which is, you know, it's clear that the majority of Ontarians uh, do not want uh, Premier Ford re-elected. Uh, they will not be voting for uh, the progressive conservatives uh, if polls are, are currently correct. Uh, so the question is, you know, who is the better alternative? Now, I guess, uh, strictly speaking, the majority of Ontarians never want a premier who's in power because every premier we've had in Ontario since World War II uh, got there with less than 50% of uh, the total votes cast. Uh, cover your ears, Steve. Even Bill Davis never got close to 50% of the votes, and he won four uh, elections. I do know that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might. Uh, so we're starting to see hints of the fact that, you know, there's going to be two campaigns happening really at the same time. Uh, the first is between uh, the New Democrats, the Liberals, and the Greens as who will be the chief uh, anti-Tory alternative. And then there's the second, which will be between the Tories and whoever the prime challenger turns out to be. Uh, obviously, the Conservatives hope their opponents will continue to split the uh, anti-Ford vote very evenly, as most polls have shown them doing, uh, further ensuring the likelihood that the government will be re-elected, uh, even if they uh, don't even necessarily get 40% of the popular vote. What do I always like to say about polls, John Michael? Uh, polls are a reflection of what people were telling the pollster yesterday and don't really say anything about the future. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You were listening. I'm honored. I, I That's mostly listen That's right. to what you say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's check in on our schools, where, as our listeners will know, the mask mandate ended some time ago, much to the chagrin of many in the schools who think taking it off before the March break was not a smart idea. Initially, the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board said it didn't want to comply with the end of the mask mandate. They wanted their students to keep the masks on as a hedge against increasing spread of COVID. Now, another school board has joined that call with some rather scary extenuating circumstances. Why don't you get into that? Uh, in uh, Eastern Ontario, in the National Capital Region, Ottawa Carleton, uh, the, the public school board, the Ottawa Carleton Board, now wants uh, to reimpose a mask mandate. Uh, it, it has emerged, of course, uh, that uh, the Liberal House leader, John Fraser, uh, his six-year-old grandson uh, has been admitted to uh, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. Fraser's grandson is being treated for uh, orbital cellulitis, which is a, an infection of the fat and muscle around the eye. Uh, the family believes it may be a post-COVID infection uh, condition. Uh, the Liberals are, of course, calling for a renewed mask mandate. Uh, they were doing so well before uh, Fraser's grandson was admitted to hospital, but uh, the government and, and Health Minister Christine Elliott uh, have obviously wished Fraser's grandson well in a speedy recovery, but they are not making any changes to the current masking policies. Let's look up north. And here is a very unhappy development for somebody preparing to run for re-election. Gilles Bisson, who is the MPP for Timmins, suffered a heart attack and had triple bypass surgery in Toronto a little over a week ago. Uh, this was a you know a very uh, shocking uh, email to get from the NDP. Uh, you know, uh, Bisson is is not standing down. Uh, he insists he's going to you know follow his doctor's orders, uh, recuperate, spend uh, you know, the next four weeks or so uh, recuperating, but is going to hit the campaign trail and then uh, seek re-election uh, for the the seat in Timmins. Uh, he's going to be sixty five years old next month uh, and is one of the longest serving members in the legislature, uh, having been first elected in nineteen ninety there. 
are, are certainly not that many MPPs who've been around as long as he has, uh, you know, a, a, a pillar in the NDP caucus. Uh, he served as the NDP House leader for many years. And uh, if you ever uh, want some classic examples of uh, opposition MPPs needling the government, uh, search for Gilles Bisson's name in Ontario Hansard, and <laughs> you will almost certainly come across them. <laughs> indeed you will, indeed. Well, let's check some recent polling, even with the admonition that polls are a great way of telling us what people thought yesterday. They are not predictive of what people will do on June 2nd, but it does give you a sense of the state of play today. This is Main Street research numbers we're about to give you. It's got the progressive conservatives at 39%, the liberals at 26 NDP 24 Greens around 3.4%, and around 15% of voters, 15% remain undecided, which is a relatively low number, all things considered. Um, okay, having said all that, if you're the Conservatives, John Michael, you got to kind of like where you're sitting right now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, these numbers would almost certainly deliver a renewed majority government to Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives. Uh, in fact, uh, Main Street Research estimates these numbers would deliver 76 seats. That's actually an increase of nine from where uh, the PCs are today. Uh, the key to their success, we talked about this earlier, is just having the opposition really evenly divided between uh, the Liberals and the NDP, uh, who, uh, as you can see in those numbers, uh, are basically tied in second. Uh, those are really perfect circumstances for the government to be reelected. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, the Ford Tories in 2018 got about 40% of the total votes cast, which is about where they are today. And yet, based on these numbers and these vote splits, Main Street is calling for nine more conservative seats. And you ask yourself, how can that possibly be? And you've answered the question there. If the opposition is more evenly divided, it's great for the government in power, right? <laughs> Right, absolutely. I, I mean, about the only good news for any of the opposition parties in these numbers is that the Liberals would probably be back in official party status. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I know it's been a sore point for the party uh, that they haven't had the resources that an official party status gets them uh, for the last several years. Uh, so, you know, they, they would have a, a really sizable caucus again at the legislature, but they still wouldn't be government. And <laughs> that's that's sort of the whole ballgame. I should know this. It's 12, isn't it? 12 seats get you official party status? Yes, it was uh, raised to 12 uh, after the last election. Right. Got it. Okay, we now have to do a couple of mea culpas. Uh, last week, we each made a mistake, and we want to correct those mistakes for the record. So, Mr. McGrath, why don't you start us off? <laughs> yeah, I made a basic arithmetic error last week. Uh, I was trying to do some quick math in my head, and I said that Ontario spends $5,000 per capita less than other provinces do. That is badly wrong. The correct number is about $500 less per capita. Uh, so, uh, very, very sorry for that. I will uh, try to learn a lesson from that. But uh, misery loves company. So, what was your goof, Steve? <laughs> oh, my mistake. My mistake is so much more egregious than yours, it's ridiculous. Last week, if people listened, they will know that we played clips from many of the MPPs who are not standing for re-election. And one of those MPPs was Norm Miller from Perry Sound, Muskoka, who talked about his dad, Frank Miller, the former Premier of Ontario. I had written down on my script that Frank Miller was the 19th Premier of Ontario, which, of course, I have known since 1985 when he was that. But I didn't say he was the 19th. For some reason, I saw 19 and the words came out 18. And everybody knows that Bill Davis was the 18th Premier of Ontario. And how a guy who wrote a 600-page book on Bill Davis still managed to screw that up, I'll never know. I'm blaming COVID, but I suspect it's just pure stupidity. Anyway, for the record, Bill Davis was Premier number 18, Frank Miller was Premier number 19, 
and the record is now corrected. I mean, I just can't believe that in a podcast episode in which we we made some you know lighthearted jokes about the uh, former premier Kathleen Wynne having to correct her own record in speeches, and I made a silly pedantic joke about MPPs always having that privilege. You and I both made those big goofs. <laughs> they have the privilege of correcting their remarks in Hansard, and so do we, <laughs> and so do we. Okay, we are now going to be joined by a special guest to talk with us about the appalling tragedy of people being killed on our roads. I thought we needed to have this conversation in light of the senseless hit-and-run killing of Boris Brat in Hamilton a couple of weeks ago. Brat was a maestro in Ontario for 50 years with the Thunder Bay Symphony, the Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra, the Brat Music Festival, the National Arts Centre. He was everywhere. And he died after being run over by someone going the wrong way on a one-way street right near his home. Eleanor McMahon is a former Ontario cabinet minister and MPP for Burlington, who created an organization called Share the Road after her husband, a police officer, was killed while cycling by someone ultimately found guilty of careless driving. The driver's sentence, 100 hours of community service. At the man's sentencing, McMahon learned the driver had five violations for driving with a suspended license and $14,000 in outstanding fines. Eleanor McMahon, welcome to the On Poly podcast. Hi there, thanks for having me. Eleanor, you're a, you're a great person to do this again and go through the misery of this story again, but I think it's important because this kind of stuff is still happening. How many years has it been since Greg's death? 15 years now. Well, I can tell you that since my friend Boris Brat was killed two weeks ago, I am no less furious about it two weeks later. Not sad, but furious. Tell me at what point the fury begins to subside. Well, two things. First of all, thank you for having me here today. I wish it was under different circumstances like you, but um, and I want to express condolences to Boris Brat's family. I, I had the privilege when I was Minister of Culture of meeting Boris Brat, and then again last summer as a board member in the Art Gallery of Hamilton where we convened a community conversation with the then Minister of Canadian Heritage, and he was there. And of course he was there because he cared about his community and culture was his reason for breathing. And he was an inspi- inspiration and a beautiful human being. So, so we we send sincere condolences and may he rest in peace. Um, so I think um, the the good thing about um, being angry about senseless and tragic events is that we have the opportunity to channel that and to make meaningful change. And for me, being able to channel my grief, channel my 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 anger at the senseless loss and the man who killed my husband was the gratitude that filled that void in my ability to, because of my background, because of what I knew, and because I'm a member of the police family, uh, channel that grief into meaningful change. And I think conversations like this one um, are are a good place to begin, Steve. So, so hopefully Boris is watching and smiling in some way, or maybe it's too soon, but at the very least, we're having this conversation and that tends to inspire and inform. So you're using your platform to do that. And I'm, I'm just glad you asked me because this is such an important conversation to have because when things like this happen, people want, um, they, they, they want healing from their loss. They, they want someone to, to be held accountable for this horrible act. And I think that that's not only human, and it's completely understandable. So I, again, I'm just happy to be here for this conversation, wishing it was different, but here, but here to have it nonetheless. 
you channeled your your anger and your sadness into creating an organization to advocate for sharing the road, uh, cyclists, pedestrians, motorists, everyone. How much impact do you think that organization has had in actually improving things? Well, I think I think it's had a lot of impact. Um, you know, the first thing that we did as we uh, were um, conceiving of the organization, I sort of went around the province and talked to as many people as would listen about what uh, what we needed to do so before we were intentional about share the road and creating the share of the world cycling coalition i went around and talked to people it was a bit of a if you build it would, would if we build it will you come and the immediate response was yes and and it really struck a chord with me that what the disparate group of people who were interested in making a difference in this realm needed with someone to convene them bring them together in some pieces places build their capacity in some places unite and inspire them and they were a coalition of very earnest and wonderful people and they ranged from politicians to community advocates to you know police officers to um, health and well-being advocates who cared about healthy safe and uh, active communities and Legislative reform for us um, became an early imperative because uh, I went to the co- to the commissioner of the OPP at the time and I said, you know, the guy that killed my husband had five convictions for driving under suspension, four for driving with no license, uh, as you pointed out, 14,000 in unpaid fines. And by the way, two months after he killed my husband, he hit someone else. And I don't think that that can stand, not because I'm a vengeful person, because I forgave him. I needed to do that. And that was healing for me too. And it was hard, but I did it not for him. I did it for me and I did it for Greg's family. I did it for us. And so I had to face him in court, by the way, twice because he, he, he appealed his original conviction. So for us, passing legislative reform was a way to say, police need the tools to enforce our roads. And there are several components to this conversation about how we make a difference in tragic circumstances. And the fact that we can represents an, represents an alignment of the stars in some extraordinary ways, because it takes someone to make the case for legislation, convince the politicians that it needs to be done, mobilize people who are in a coalition that want to see it happen, then get it passed, then train police officers, then get the courts to use the instrument effectively, then to see that the charge gets laid, and then to see that there's meaningful sentences that are adjudicated so that we get the kind of change that we want to see. So there are so many parts to this equation, and it's why so many people don't elect to proceed because it feels overwhelming and they don't know how. So I'm incredibly grateful that I had the skills that I was able to do all those things and consider it a minor miracle that I I was able to pass not just one, but three legislative changes in Greg's memory. And the first being the the Greg's law in 2009. And again, when I went to the commissioner, he said, I'm in, what do you need from me? And I'm pretty fearless. I asked him to work inside government to mobilize in the Ontario Public Service. And I said, I will do the rest. I will mobilize the, the societal conversation. I will work with the media. I will be the voice of this campaign and together uh, we can get this done. So that that's really the, the conversation and then share the road uh, has uh, again, be the, being the convener and still today is the partner to government for safe cycling in Ontario, having organized a corners review into cycling death, meaningful legislative change and a coalition that has been 
that partner to government and convened the important actors in this conversation. So I, in, in telling you this story and thinking about it again, I, I have an enormous amount of gratitude to the people that helped us along the way. Uh, but when I think about the loss and the census loss of someone like Boris, um, I do think we can, if feasible, use these moments of grief to um, you know, have that conversation and remind uh, political actors that this remains an issue of interest and concern to people and vigilance uh, and, we, and we, we haven't solved it yet. So we need, to, we, need, we need to continue to be influential when it comes to road safety. A couple of follow-ups from me on this. Number one, did, did the man who did this to your husband, did he ever ask for your forgiveness or apologize to you? No, not once. Um, I saw him um, during the court proceedings uh, a couple of times. Um, I passed him in the parking lot. We were in the same physical space together a few times. And not once did he ask for my forgiveness. And not once did he apologize. My God. All and, right. Second follow up. What, yeah. what do we need to do now? You've pointed out that we need to continue to work yeah. to make things better. So, I, I mean, I, I note that there has been an upsurge, even in the last few weeks, of pedestrians being killed Seven. Uh, in their neighborhoods. Seven in Hamilton in the last couple of weeks. Ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculous. Um, okay. What still needs doing? You know, it's, um, it certainly isn't, um, it never is a silver bullet issue. I wish that I could sit here and tell you it's this one thing. And if we could just do this one thing, we could start saving people's lives tomorrow. I can think of a couple of things off the top that, that have worked in other jurisdictions around the world who have prioritized pedestrian and cyclist safety in the context of vulnerability. So we call pedestrians and cyclists and motorcyclists vulnerable road users because they, they are more vulnerable than motorists. And consequently, they are allowed certain privileges as a consequence of that vulnerability. And those range depending on where you are jurisdictionally. So the Northern Europeans and the Europeans in general really have the cycling and pedestrian uh, culture nailed. We're late to the party in North America. There are some cities around Canada and in the United States that have done important things, but we have a long way to go to catch up to jurisdictions um, that have prioritized pedestrian and cyclist safety. Um, everyone who goes to Europe, and of course, many of us haven't been able to travel in a while, remembers that one of the things they love about it, you ask people, what do you love about Europe? What do you like about Rome or France or in, in Paris? Oh, I love the cities. You get to walk around, outdoor cafes, and so on. How have they made that work? They've they prioritized people-powered movement. They've made it safe, easy, and convenient, as the Dutch and Danes have done, to make it easy to walk and ride your bicycle for the numerous economic, health, and safety benefits that that has. They have lowered speed limits inside cities. So if you go uh, into the large cities in Europe even, their speed limits are a lot lower than ours. Speed kills. And making sure that we have lower speed limits is a dramatic and really important way to change behaviors because it automatically sends a signal that, you know, don't, this isn't the 401. Downtown Hamilton is not the 401. You know why? There's no pedestrians and cyclists on the 401. We don't allow them on 400 series highways. Very few people walk from Windsor to Chatham, for example. But they do walk in downtown Hamilton to go to the symphony, to go to restaurants, and we want them. We want these cities to be attractive places because, because lives matter and also because 
The next generation, by the way, of young people aren't driving as much. 40% fewer young people are getting driver's license. And the future of our economy depends on transit-related development, um, high-density cities where people are walking and cycling. And those modes of transportation are prioritized. For far too long, they've been politicized. And that has to stop. We cannot solve problems by politicizing these issues. It's not about us versus them. We are all in this together. And politicians have an obligation to act on everyone's behalf, but to prioritize vulnerability. And slowing down speeds in municipal jurisdictions is a powerful way to send a signal that speeding is not tolerated, safety is important, and that's one, that's one immediate way that the city of Hamilton, for example, could take powerful action in light of this, um, of this horrific collision. By the way, I've seen what this uh, driver is charged with. He's been charged under the Criminal Code of Canada. Uh, dangerous driving is a criminal code, um, uh, you know, and that's largely because he's charged with fail to remain. This was a hit and run. These are charges that carry with them jail time if he's, if he's convicted. That's a big if because the burden is on the crown who has to prove um, mensis rea and actus rea. I can unpack those for you if you want. But those, those things don't um, exist in the Provincial Offences Court. Greg's case was a case of careless driving. Careless driving doesn't carry with it the penalties that dangerous driving does. There's a dramatic difference. And so the consequences of the decisions that this driver made driving the wrong way down a street, for example, that is a criminal code offense. So he's been charged under the criminal code with dangerous driving, from what I've read in press reports. Well, well let's stick with this issue of, of legal uh, matters and, and legal punishments. Uh, you, you've talked about lowering speed limits and, and some other measures that, that jurisdictions can use, but I mean, let's put a, a sharp point on this. I mean, are the punishments for killing someone with your vehicle severe enough right now in Ontario or Canada? <laughs> So if I take it up to a 100,000 foot level, in Canada, um, our jurisprudence, unlike the United States somewhat, is really focused in, in broad stroke terms on rehabilitation. And we believe in the power of rehabilitation and reintegration. And we, we have an innocent until proven guilty. In these cases, the burden is on the crown to prove mensus rea or the guilty mind. And in driving cases and in vehicular situations, it's a lot different than charging someone with first degree murder in a first degree murder uh, situation uh, or in a capital murder case, you have uh, an intentional charge and consequently the sentencing is aligned with that. I would say that we probably need to take a look at our provincial offenses court. There are bigger problems, John Michael. So to get back to your question, are the sentences heavy enough? Justices of the peace who are the adjudicators in the provincial justice and provincial courts, provincial offenses system, because the Provincial Offenses Act is inclusive of the Highway Traffic Act. Now, in this situation, the motorist who killed Mr. Brott or the alleged motorist, because he hasn't been convicted yet, he is charged under the criminal code. But in Greg's case, it was the provincial offenses. Uh, very, very, very rarely is jail time associated with someone who's killed with a Highway Traffic Act offense. Very rarely. The Crown in our case called for jail time. And that was largely because 
we learned in sentencing, and this is important because this is when these things come out, and this is the facts of the matter. So we don't know the fellow who's charged with killing Boris, we don't know his driver history. And that won't come out until sentencing. In Canada, the adjudication of our justice means that the, yet you, that the charges are focused on the singular offense and your previous driving abstract is not brought to bear until sentencing. So you were not judged on what you did in the past, you're judged on this incident. So that tends to frame things a little bit differently. So knowing that this fellow had this tremendous record in our case was disheartening to say the least. It didn't really change the facts of the matter that he was careless and he hit Greg and he he was, uh, you know, he only got 100 hours of community service. Um, had I wished that he had jail, I wished that he had been given a tougher sentence, largely because I think it sends a powerful signal to society that lives are important and that when you make a mistake like this and it's a careless mistake, 30 seconds can cost someone their life. And that you need to be responsible and accountable. My husband spent his career holding people to account. And this was really, really personally important to him. So it was really important to me that this, that this fellow who killed him be held accountable for what he did. I have no idea whether he feels accountable. He never said sorry to your point, Steve. He never took the opportunity to say, I'm sorry I robbed you of your best friend. I'm sorry that my carelessness, my sheer carelessness, took him from you, took um, you know, him away from his family and his daughter, and he's gone and he'll never meet his grandchildren. I'm sorry, never said that. I, well, this is one of the very things that we were talking about actually at Boris Brott's funeral, which is there will be no justice here. Even if this fellow goes to jail, there's no justice because Boris is dead forever and this guy will go to jail for however long he'll go to jail for or not and, and then get on with his life. I know just the other day at TVO, a bunch of us were sitting around talking about this. And and immediately when I raised this example, Eleanor, it, person by person by person by person came out with other examples of how they'd almost been hit or somebody carelessly drove and almost knocked them over or somebody was out with a perambulator walking their baby and, 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 and almost got hit. There seems to be so much of this and yet so little political focus or action on it. You've been in politics. Why do you think that is? I think it's because as a society, we just accept that people are going to die every day and we've internalized it and we've stopped, we've, we're numb to it anymore. I think the sheer barrage of the numbers of people, I, I listen to these pedestrian and cycling deaths, every one of them preventable. And I think to myself, those families have been shattered. Those lives are changed. That person is gone far too soon. And it does require more of a response. There are things that we can do. We put men on the moon again, Steve, and brought them back again. You know, I'm fond of saying we put men on the moon and brought them back again. Surely to God, we can figure this out. We need to, to concretely say that this is a priority and focus on the kind of safer infrastructure treatments, better lighting in some instances, better signalization, and slower speeds, speed kills. Honestly, the difference between 40 and 60 kilometers in a pedestrian collision is the difference between life and death. I don't know how fast this fellow was going. The police investigation will determine that. Um, <clears throat> he fled the scene, and so we don't know if he's been charged with impaired, for example. It can't be because there was a loss of continuity in the evidence chain. So he likely wouldn't be charged with impaired because they don't have the evidence for that. So we don't know many of the facts of this case. But it is a classic example of 
the need for change behavior, um, sentencing and tougher sentencing can lead to better decisions and better choices. And that's part of the equation. But as I said earlier, this is not a silver bullet. We have more to do in how we prioritize cyclists and, 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 um, and, and pedestrians. And if we say that they are a priority, that we want, we want our cities to be walkable and safe for all ages, then we have to put our money where our mouth is and legislators have to get serious about working with municipalities to either give them the tools that they don't have now or um, stipulate that infrastructure has to be inclusive of, of um, the kinds of pedestrian and cycling safety that we need. You've already alluded to uh, the, the infrastructure side of this thing, and I, I just think it's really important. I mean, how much of this problem is, you know, individual behaviors, whether it's poor drivers or or, or, or cyclists or pedestrians uh, versus the, the design of roadways, uh, bike lanes, uh, things like that? Uh, over the years, I've heard the phrase often, you can't legislate good behavior. Um, it's quite true that people are going to make bad decisions every day. That's what makes us human beings. Uh, there's a there's always a, we like to think that there's regret in these circumstances when people make bad choices that end in loss of life or severe injury. So changing people's behavior is and incenting them to make better decisions is part of it. But we really do need to think carefully about how we design our cities and creating safer streets and safer neighborhoods, slowing things down, putting speed bumps in, um, you know, um, making our, inter in our, our intersections safer, um, prioritizing vulnerability. Um, you know, cities in Europe have prioritized vulnerable road users. If you go to Denmark, if you go to Sweden, if you go to Norway, you see that the city street treatment is so classically focused, um, not on, not just on cars. You know, cities aren't just for cars, cities are for people. And even in New York City, where they have a prioritized cycling and walking strategies, New York is a great walking city. Do people get hit by cars there? Yes, they do. But they've taken meaningful steps to um, arrange for deliveries at off-peak off hours, for example, remove trucks from their streets so that vulnerable road users can have priority, give the streetscape to the people who are the most vulnerable. They do it in Europe. And the last time I looked, you know, um, Sweden um, and Denmark have thriving economies. They put cyclists on a, um, on a, sorry, they start with pedestrians and they give them lots of birth because it, people powered movement is what they prioritize. And those people make an economic difference because they're slow moving and they shop and they shop on their way home and they walk to work. And then you step down a little bit on the street and then you have your bike lane and then you have your car and then you have your live lane. Cyclists aren't required to, to ride in a bike lane next to a car. Why are we protecting, protecting the cars? We need to protect people and put a greater focus on vulnerability and vulnerable road users and make them the priority. We have to stop designing cities and neighborhoods around cars. They are important, but they're not the only thing that's important. And when you prioritize vulnerability, you make your roads safer. It's, it's that simple. Eleanor, I have to say, on behalf of John Michael, I'm always so uh, impressed at how you are prepared to speak so courageously about the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. I know with the hope that somewhere down the road, it's going to result in more impactful, meaningful change that will help save lives. So thanks again for sparing some time for us today. We're grateful. Well, 
That's really kind of you, Steve. You know, I'm when I'm in these conversations, I'm thinking about Boris's family. I'm thinking at, about the other seven pedestrians who've lost their lives. I sat on the coroner's review in a cycling desk. One of the deaths that was um, investigated was my husband's. It, it does take some courage to do these things, but I think courage is a gift. And if I can use that gift in the service of other people, then I feel that my husband's death will not be a meaningless tragedy. I'm seeking to bring meaning to a senseless act. And I suspect that Boris's family is trying to do the same. You will never understand why on that particular day um, your loved one left the house and didn't come back and why someone chose to make an egregious choice that ended in such a horrible loss of life. Unfortunately, we will never understand these things, but if we can bring some meaning to it, then, and if this conversation helps to catalyze meaningful change, then I've, I've been able to advance the agenda. Here, here. Thanks, Eleanor. God bless. Oh, you're so welcome. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. We also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly dash newsletter. And this week we talk about the NDP being 10 seats away, or if they're really 10 seats away. We will explore. Yes. Here now, my quote of the week, and I'm going for a three-in-one quote of the week this time. Our friend Nam Kiwanuka moderated the Equity Day leaders debate last week. The leaders of the NDP, Liberals, and Green Party all showed up. Premier Doug Ford of the Progressive Conservatives did not. So here are snippets from the closing comments from Andrea Horvath, Stephen Del Duca, and Mike Schreiner. As you saw, there was a lot of uh, a lot of agreement in the room, uh, but the question uh, now is, how do we take this from conversation to action? Uh, that's where we are now, uh, and so what we need to consider is who is going to have the ability to defeat Doug Ford and start delivering start delivering on the on the commonalities that we discussed on these things that we all agree uh, need to be done. And, and I can say with all uh, sincerity that I need your vote. I need your vote to do that. But it's clear because progress isn't guaranteed, we still have to do this work. You're doing it in such a phenomenal way, but it falls to, to all of us, in particular those of us who aspire to be the next premier of this province, to be very clear about how we will deliver the progress. And you've made this process so good for us tonight. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your efforts. Thank you for your guidance. And I look forward to having the chance to work closely with you for many, many years to come. Thank you very much. I want you to think a moment about the Ontario you want to build and then the kind of leadership it's going to take to build it. We cannot afford to wait any longer to address so many of the issues that you brought up tonight. And we've had successive governments over and over again over the years not deliver on that. And so I think it's time for a party with new solutions to old problems new ideas to hold the older line parties accountable. And the only way I can do that is to elect more Green MPPs. Horvath, Del Duca, and Schreiner at the Equity Day debate last week. 
And uh, my quote of the week comes from uh, the absent Premier Doug Ford, uh, who did not make it to that debate. But uh, later in the week, he was instead in Toronto, uh, where he uh, announced a major milestone for the Ring of Fire. And it's been a true partnership in every sense of the word and has brought us together for this landmark announcement. As our province becomes the global leader in building electric vehicles of the future, we're connecting industries, resources, and workers in the north. To the auto and EV battery manufacturers in the south, so we can unlock the full economic potential of northern Ontario. That's Premier Doug Ford in Toronto last week, where the government announced a major milestone in perhaps one day actually building a road to the Ring of Fire and unlocking the nickel and chromium deposits there. And that is this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Steve.